From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Faint, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing here on Battlefields, please download and share this episode and leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guest is Donnie Doffenbaugh. As an infantry Marine only two months into his first deployment with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, Donnie was shot in the face during a firefight in Mamadiyya, Iraq, and received wounds that brought about the end of his active military service. The outcome of that night has led him down a lengthy road to recovery. With lifelong challenges that come from being wounded in action, Donnie's injury has shown him that being alive, being capable, and having a beautiful, loving family is truly a gift. Using this horrific experience as a positive, Danny now proudly represents the Coalition to Salute America's Heroes as a Senior Vice President of Veteran Care and as a National Spokesperson. Through the Coalition, he is able to help other wounded veteran families as they transition from being injured or disabled while serving to a successful and higher quality of life. Donnie holds a master's degree in organizational leadership from Colorado Technical University and a Bachelor of Business Management degree from Western Governors University. He lives in League City, Texas with his beautiful wife, Sarah, and their two children, Colin and Everly. Donnie's 19-year-old daughter is a sophomore at Sam Houston State University. From a long road to recovery after being severely wounded in action, to an MBA, to senior vice president of a major veteran-focused nonprofit, these are Donnie Doffenbaugh's Battlefields. Hey, Donnie, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me. Hey, I think this is going to be a great session. We talked before we started recording. You've got a fantastic history there. We're going to get into it here in just a second. I'm really fascinated by the Coalition to Support America's Heroes. So let's just go ahead and get right into it. Donnie, can you talk to us a little bit about your early life, where you grow up, and what made you decide to join the Marine Corps? Sure. I just told somebody about this yesterday. Uh, so I'm actually from Des Moines, Iowa, although I live in Texas. I know you can probably tell I don't have much of an accent, or if there is an accent there, it just kind of sucks. Um, I'm one of nine kids, so we uh, we grew up and we were extremely poor. Um, you know, if, if we did what, what we were supposed to, we would no kidding, get a $5 food stamp as our allowance if, if we did what we were told. And uh, the, the downside to the $5 bill, uh, when it used to look like Monopoly money, because now it's just on the little debit card, uh, was that sometimes we would walk a mile to the store to use our $5 food stamp allowance money. And if the person working at the gas station thought we had stolen anything, we were adventurous kids, uh, she would make us walk back home and get the book that actually had my dad's name on it to verify that we were, in fact, supposed to have that Monopoly money looking stuff. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah. So grew up super poor and, uh, but, you know, drug abuse. Uh, my mom was was an avid drug user her whole life. Um, I was actually just telling my boss today, he never heard that 
um, when I was when I came into this world. Uh, my mom was was on drugs and uh, didn't know she was having twins. So she's in the bathroom putting on makeup. And I was born at home uh, in a 800 square foot house on the floor in the bathroom. And the funny tie into that story is I've always been a great swimmer. And all my brothers and sisters love to tell everyone that I'm a great swimmer because I was born in the toilet, <laughs> which I wasn't. But uh, it, it's it's become family lore now. So I, I can't I can't get away from it. But we grew up poor. Um, uh, you know, we had a lot of uh, abuse issues with my daddy, you know, just kind of an angry, angry guy that drank a lot and would take a lot of that out on us. And so my upbringing really showed me what life wasn't supposed to be like. And I mean, I wasn't a, a rock star student. I, I barely graduated high school. I just wanted to get out of there. Uh, but during my junior year, I said, you know what? I think joining the military would be a good way for me to get out of all of this that I'm seeing. And uh, went to the army. You know, I had an older brother that was in the army. I went and talked to the army recruiter. It just didn't feel right. And so then I went and talked to the Marine recruiter. And I'm not even kidding when I say, he said, well, what kind of a job would you like to do in the Marines? And I'm looking around the Marine Corps recruiting office. And I saw this guy with all this cool gear on with like NVGs on his helmet and just a rocking, uh, you know, combat setup. And I said, what job does stuff like that? He's like, oh, that, that's 0311 infantry. That's what you want to do if you want to do that, which I wish you would have told me that's what you want to do if you want to be a 35-year-old with arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but so I, I chose that. And I, I said, okay, I, I want to do that. And I joined, uh, hated boot camp, lost 35 pounds. I don't know anyone that goes to Marine Corps boot camp without, you know, an extreme transformation. And that was me. Um Came out uh, right before I uh, shipped off to boot camp. I actually was uh, in a relationship and I said, you know what? I think in Des Moines, there's a reserve unit. I'll switch to reserve and I'll, I'll go that route. Infantry line company. As uh, soon as I left, like I knew that was a bad idea, but I stuck with it. And the good thing about me having started in the reserves was that I was able to go through a four-year apprenticeship program to become a journeyman carpenter. So I loved turning a pile of dirt or something into a, a building or, or just, you know, I love working with my hands and building things and fixing things. And it just worked out. Um, so then September 11th comes along, uh, terrorist attacks. It, you know, it's kind of one of those like the Daryl Worley song, have you forgotten? Where were you at kind of thing? I know exactly where I was. I was drywalling an attic for an old guy in West Des Moines, Iowa. And we turned the news on, which we often did. And couldn't believe what was happening. And, and even my buddy at the time that I was working with said, what does this mean for you? And I mean, I, I called my unit and said, hey, what, what does this mean for us? And they said, well, you know, we're elevated right now, but we're on standby. So just just wait. If we if we get activated and sent somewhere, we'll call you. Didn't happen. Didn't happen for a long time. And then during Fallujah, they said, hey, we need uh, we need our unit, uh, infantry line company. We need to go over and win the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. So we did some left seat, right seat with the Marine unit that we were relieving. And uh, that started my anti-vacation in the country of Iraq. Wow, what a fascinating story of, of growing up with that hardship and then getting into, into the Marine Corps. Do you think your upbringing helped you prepare for life as a Marine before you went overseas? You know, I think so. I mean, um, when I was a kid, we slept on the floor. Uh, we all had a box with our name on it that we put all of our clothes in. We had to go to the laundromat. I mean, it's literally just like being in 
you know, being in the barracks at, at Camp uh, Margarita or, or Camp Horno and Camp Pendleton. So probably it, it certainly hardened me. I think it um, it lessened my emotional connection a little bit prior to even going uh, just because of all the stuff that we had to do and um, things that I've had to see with with, you know, people trying to catch our house on fire because my mom owed them money from a bad deal and you know, watching people shoot up in one of our houses when I was in like fourth grade, just it, it definitely it, it gave me the drive that I needed to succeed in at least starting down the road in the Marine Corps. So, Donnie, how long had you been in the Marine Corps before your unit got alerted to go overseas? So I joined right out of high school, um, joined in uh, August of 99. And so I was uh, we didn't know anything until February 1st, uh, 2004 that we were going to be over uh, kind of in support of what was happening in Fallujah. So I, I'd been in for, for four years, basically. Wow. Okay. So how did you feel when you found out that you were finally going after five years in the Marines? So from, from like September 12th, 2001 to, you know, November of 2003, I just the thought of being there and being a part of that really was exciting. Uh, of course, then I met my wife now of 20 years. And when I found out that uh, she was pregnant in 2003, uh, so I knew that I was going and I left like physically leaving on a jet plane, you know, play the music in your mind if you want to. Uh, don't know when I'll come back again kind of thing the day before her birthday. And oh, wow. uh, so I, I yeah, I mean, I was excited uh, until I realized I had more on, you know, more at stake. Uh, but even then I was really proud. It, it, it's something that, you know, with the constantly going to the range and constantly doing urban warfare and now, and, and, you know, just all of the things we did, it's like, Hey, put me in coach. I'm ready. And that's kind of what I felt like. Yeah. It was pretty sporty over in Iraq in 04. I was there at the same time. I was a little bit further east of you. I was over blood, but what were your early experiences like in Iraq? I know you you had a rather major one that we'll talk to in just a minute, but when you first got there, what was it like for you and your unit? So day one, uh, when we landed in Baghdad, after doing the whole acclimation thing in Kuwait, uh, day one, we were part of a 35-vehicle convoy, and somebody pulled up next to the very first vehicle, which I think from a learning perspective, they obviously learned that's not where you hit. You know, you want to hit it in the middle if you're going to try and injure a bunch of people. Uh, day one, from Baghdad to our base, uh, Vehicle IED uh, took out the first vehicle, shredded the tire, and destroyed the engine. Peppered the two guys on the passenger side, but didn't didn't um, like they weren't medevaced out. They were treated, triaged, and sent back to. Or, or they stayed, um, but we had some really good experiences there. We, you know, once we got familiar with the area, uh, I don't know how it was in Balad. I mean, fortunately, my time in Balad was fairly short because it was only to the hospital. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, you found out the 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 disadvantage of where we were was a lot of agriculture, uh, dates, um, all kinds of of different tree borne nuts and things and fruits. And you might be walking two or three miles before you come to a spot where you can cross one of those, you know, 15 feet deep irrigation channels. And, uh, so you learn the, the, you learn to appreciate where the crossings are. Uh, you certainly appreciate when you've got, uh, Army combat engineers coming through, and you find out that they may or may not have a couple of 30-foot extended fold-out bridges <laughs> that they could drop in place for you uh, and just leave them there. 
but we, um, you know, Fallujah had sent a lot of people out of where to, to our area. It was Mamadia, which is part of the Sunni Triangle. And so we were able to help with, um, you know, unloading truckloads of school supplies for some of the kids that were doing school there. Uh, we really developed a good relationship with a lot of the leadership. I uh, can't tell you how many roundtables we have with chai and pita bread, just hashing some things out. Um, medically, we were able to help a lot of people medically. And so one of our times that we were out, there was a family that came out into the street yelling, you know, and, and flagged us down and we stopped and they were getting their water from one of these irrigation channels, which most of the people did where we were. Um, and all of them had lesions. I mean, it kind of looked like the last of us, the show that's on right now, less of like the mushroomy stuff, more of just like sores and lesions and everything. And it was bad. And so we had a corpsman with us and he's tending to the medical stuff. And we're looking around, just kind of evaluating what's going on. And none of us are biologists. We're not chemical engineers. And we looked at the water supply and walked about 200 yards up. And there was a kind of a great set up to, to block a, a dam, you know, sort of thing. And there was a dead cow in there, um, auto parts, like there was uh, parts of an engine that someone had dropped in there. And so that's going right by these people's houses. So then they're going and getting the water. They weren't, a lot of times they weren't even boiling it. And so we, we changed a lot for them in the short time that we were there. And really our, our thing was just people shot at us all the time. Um, you know, driving by, taking pot shots. It got to the point where we'd laugh if they weren't even remotely <laughs> close. Our base was small. Of course, the T-wall, you know, the development of the concrete T-wall. Yep. And uh, people loved to see how close they could get with mortars. When they would mortar our base, um, we, we, the funny thing, at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, when the walls are shaking, we still had the, the old school Vietnam-style tents with the two-by-four walls. Some genius decided to put 3,000 pounds of sand on top of that thing. Uh, but when the walls are shaking at <laughs> three in the morning, you don't know if it's us providing illumination or because or, we had a huge artillery battery as part of our base, or you don't know if it's incoming mortars. And about one in every three times it was incoming. And um, there were always people getting injured, always people being sprayed. Um, before my incident, my buddy was literally at the front of our our command uh, building, and he was the, um, the colonel's driver, uh, personal security detail driver. And he was sitting in the passenger seat of the Humvee, getting ready to go, and an AT-4 or a, a RPG rocket came right through the window and lodged into the passenger seat of the Humvee that he's sitting in, waiting for our colonel to jump <laughs> into the front seat. And I asked him, I'm like, dude, do you have to change your underwear with that one? And he said, I was, I was this close. He said, honestly, I didn't even have time to think about it. He opened the door and rolled out of the vehicle and took off and yelled bomb or something and cleared the whole area. And then, you know, EOD came and uh, they said, man, I don't know why, because the thing had been fired from over our fence. So it had the distance, it had the situation, yeah. whatever was needed for that thing to go off. It was all there, but it didn't detonate. And so I'd say the experience of were some pretty good, some really, really sucky, but, uh, you know, we walked everywhere. IEDs, uh, buried IEDs were a big problem for our people that were there. And our commanding officer, um, Major Schmidt said, hey, you guys aren't riding in vehicles on roads anywhere, you're walking. And it didn't matter if we were going to 
detain a bomb maker that was like eight miles from our base, we were hoofing it. And one time we got picked up by an army unit that was coming to Mamadia to drop off a bunch of stuff. And we were all so excited because we knew we would be able to get there before the chow hall closed <laughs> and be able to eat in the hot in the chow hall. And uh, IED blew up right when we drove over one of the bridges. The it was only three vehicles, uh, you know, five ton trucks. We're 50 yards past it, and the just this huge explosion rocked you, you know, just kind of rocked you. And this four feet thick concrete bridge had a perfect hole in it. Uh, with rebar and electric wire and water lines blown completely out. So they tried, uh, but they failed. But we were, it was only three vehicles. So had that been successful, that was, that was an eye opener. It's like, yeah, wow. right, sir, we're going to, I'll just walk everywhere. <laughs> so walking as a force protection measure, you think that was effective? You think that was a, a good strategy? It worked for us. And, nice. and so I was meeting with somebody yesterday and he said, man, that must have really been horrible to walk everywhere. And I said, it was, but said, do you like the movie Full Metal Jacket? And the guy said, oh, of course I do. And I said, okay, you know, right when they get in country to Vietnam and the guy's walking and he says, oh, look at this stuffed animal. I'm going to pick this up to take home. And they, you know, obviously we know what happens. So a lot of our training focused on them recognizing that more people were, were on foot versus vehicles. And so we did a whole week of literally training to look at garbage. And to see if there were any wires or antennas or phone or, or, you know, at night, if something was lit up with a, like the side of a cell phone. And so, yes, I think walking definitely helped a lot of us. Uh, the, the one disadvantage was, you know, the night that we'll talk about being as far away as I was having walked there, not being in a vehicle. But yeah, I think walking definitely saved a lot of heartache uh, for a lot of our folks. And we lost 13 Marines uh, during our deployment. Wow. And one of them was an incoming border, but all of the rest were blown up in Humvees. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely worked for us. So what was the perception of the locals by you and your fellow Marines when you're there? You're interacting with these folks that you were talking about before that you're helping with the water, but at the same time, it seems like a lot of folks are trying to kill you. So what, what was that like for you and your unit and dealing with the locals? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's definitely a very tense kind of environment, as you know, as most of the people that listen to the show or some of your other folks that have been interviewed know, it's it's a high tension kind of environment. Uh, but you got a feeling for someone, you know, you just you could see them and know if they were going to be a problem or not. And, you know, I mean, I've heard horrible stories uh, about people's involvements with kids and things. And I'm really lucky to say I don't have any of those um, when we were, the, the time that I told you we walked nine miles to cordon off the apartment building and bring in a bomb maker, I mean, we were out there for like three hours and these little kids were hustling. They were bringing us Coke <laughs> and they were bringing us Pepsi and bringing us like candy bars. And we always took a couple of ones with us for stuff like that. And it was very welcome, uh, to, to what we were doing for them they recognized that having us there was more of a benefit than it was mm. to not. Mm. And so it, really, I would say two thirds of the people that we had any interaction with, uh, as long as we didn't kick in their door, shoot their dog, destroy their car. You know, we had claims Thursday where people would come and file their grievances and our JAG officer would give them money, which <laughs> can't even imagine how much money that costs. Outside of that, the, the people were relatively happy to have us. Nice. Well, you mentioned earlier, Donnie, that 
you had some carpentry skills. Were you able to use any of that when you were downrange? So funny enough, I was. Um, one of the so my my commanding officer for my line company uh, from Des Moines, we had a headquarters and support element, and this big beefy like Arnold Schwarzenegger of a guy. Um, I can't say what his name is because someone will Google it and they'll be like, oh man, did you hear what that guy said? And he probably still is like <laughs> pumping roids and like, you know, eating protein power packs and whatever. But when he found out that I was a, a home builder and that I was a commercial carpenter, he said, hey, what would you need? So we had our uh, towers and the towers had the ladder that went up them, but there was nothing over the hole. And so uh, one night we had a different unit that was doing UAV stuff and one of their smaller UAVs crashed into our tower. I'm pretty sure that dude never flew it again. <laughs> but um, the guy that was in the tower thought that someone had hit it with an RPG. And so when he backed up right through the hole, oh, yeah, breaking his hip and his leg because he fell, you know, 20 right, feet, 25 right. feet. So I was able to put in... Uh, three quarter inch plywood with two by four with a rope and a handle uh, in the four uh, tower posts that we had. And I mean, it was, it was an awesome day because what sucks with us being there was that our, our rotation or our schedule was four days of patrolling, uh, three days of on-base or two days of on-base security. And then one day of working party, that working party day was the R and R day. Uh, but that was, anything but and so that was the day that i'm like hey i'm not patrolling and i don't have base security but you know i, I tried working the angle of hey rather than being corporal to guard for the towers today what, sir what do you say i get to knocking out those hole covers and he said well you guys are doing that you, you'll have to wait until tomorrow on the uh r and r day so that was it that was the only time i ever got to build anything and he said what do you need and i said i need battery powered uh, circular saw, sawzall, drill, screws, nail, tape measure, and a square. All of that came from Baghdad like three days later, and it was it was awesome. It was like magic. Of course, now being a taxpayer and being a little bit older, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where did that wind up? It was bad. Probably taken back home for him to build his gym or something. But yeah, it was. that was the only time I ever got to do anything outside of being a Marine was covering those holes. <laughs> yeah, that ended up in somebody's tough box for sure. Uh, some of those connexes that were shipped back, I guarantee you compliments of the generous American taxpayers. There's probably a lot of stuff that's like, well, what do you want me to do with it? Leave it there. Right. Right. And then you get a situation like Afghanistan where it's like, well, no, don't yeah. leave anything there. No, definitely not. Well, how long had you been in country before you had your incident? Uh, seven weeks. Oh, wow. So not long at all. Nope. So we had done, we did the left seat, right seat for about a week, week and a half, uh, just to familiarize yourself with some of the routes. Uh, they introduced us to some of the people that were helpful. And then those guys went home and uh, we took over completely after about a week, week and a half. And um, I mean, it, it, everything kind of feels normal. You know, the area where I, where where, uh, where it happened, I'd been before. I'd walked right through there, didn't set up a checkpoint or anything, but I'd been in that area before. Uh, we'd found a backpack full of grenades on some guy's back porch, um, found uh, uh, mortar rings from someone that was, you know, shooting mortars at our base. Uh, but yeah, it was seven weeks. Wow. 
Well, let's go ahead and jump into that then, Donnie. Can you talk about the incident when you when you got wounded? Yep. So um, again, like I said, seven weeks and our base got mortared a lot. So um, one night when we were out about four miles outside of our, our where our base was located, uh, we called the area the ghetto. It was just a rough, rough part of town, always getting shot at, always finding something that people shouldn't have on them. And so we always knew to expect something there. And so we uh, get a call on the radio that our base is getting mortared. And I always thought at that point, oh, man, these things are so loud when they hit and they're loud when you shoot them. But I would think if they're coming from anywhere over by us, you're going to hear them being shot. Well, I didn't hear or see anything. Uh, so we set up a checkpoint in this little town and the rules of engagement were crystal clear because of some of the issues that we'd had uh, leading up to the Fallujah and, and uh, you know other incidents. So ROI, crystal clear, draw a line in the sand. If they cross it, engage them. If they don't, you can't. So we stopped a couple of cars. We were searching vehicles, just, just looking in the windows. Searching really isn't the right word. We were snooping through the outside of the window. And this one guy, we stopped him and his car was clean and it was red. And he was pissed. So we found out that his dad was a, a local sheik. And so he thought kind of like a mayor's son here, like, oh, my dad's a big wig. I can do whatever I want. Right. So we stopped him and he's freaking out on us. And all we're doing is looking for a mortar tube, uh, thinking that somebody may be a part of mortaring, throwing the tube in the backseat and then driving away from where they launched them so that it makes them less of an obvious person of interest. Yeah, right on. And little cars, you know, it's like putting a Great Dane in the backseat of a Ford Escort with no tin windows. You're going to see it if it's there. And that was what we were operating on. Didn't see anything. Guy gets pissed. We yell for one of our interpreter guys to come up. And uh, as he's coming up to join us, the guy puts his car in reverse, drives backwards. I'm like, good riddance. That's fine. Uh, you know, you go somewhere else. We don't care. Well, he tried to, he drove up into the grass driving backwards and tried to run over. There were, there were 12 Marines as, with my squad and one corpsman. So they tried to run over three of those Marines that Ooh. were on the side of the road. That's a bad idea. Yeah. So they engaged him. And uh, at some point, he stopped going backwards and put it in drive. And at that point, he's charging our checkpoint. And all of us, our first thought is he's got a bomb in his trunk. Right. And he's going to drive that thing right, just hand over it to us. Not the case. Uh, so I, he, we don't know where he had it because he didn't roll his window down all the way. Uh, but he pulled an AK-47 out from under the side of his man dress or his seat or whatever and started shooting kind of indiscriminately. And uh, so the, the Marine on the right side of me was uh, tucked next to a car uh, for, for cover. The guy on the left side of me was in a, uh, up against a brick fence. I'm in a grass field. And one thing that they've always told us is if you don't have cover and you don't have concealment, make yourself a small target. So I hit the prone not very comfortable because you know all the crap we carry on the front of our flight right. jackets and stuff. And uh, he's shooting it all in our direction. And so I shoot at his car a couple of times. And then it, it's like the third trigger pull. Everything slowed down for me. It was like putting it in slow-mo for a movie during an action scene. And it was bang, bang, bang. And then so I felt what, what I can only imagine, you know, we're, we're Astros fans. Uh, my man, Jose Altuve. If Jose Altuve came up and hit me in the face with a bat, I would think that's probably about what it felt like, what getting shot in the face feels like. 
So on the left side of my cheek, I've got a, a dimple, uh, not on the other side. And um, the bullet, so we thought it just nicked me. Um, I blacked out. I came to a big puddle of blood. And it's such a dumb grunt thing. But I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to get blood on my M16. And I pushed it out <laughs> of the way because I had like a pack four laser on there, right. a light on there. I didn't want to get it all bloody because I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to clean blood off right. my weapon. That's going to be lame. No, you don't want to do yeah. that. Yeah. So I didn't have to do that. I, I don't even know what they did with my weapon anyways. But so uh, I blacked out. I radio for my guys. Well, when the guy crashed, he crashed into a building. And then the people that were in that building started shooting at us. And, you know, anybody with an upper elevated position has the advantage. And so um, the corpsman wraps my face, thinking it just nicked me, uh, wraps my face, pulls me over against uh, the brick fence. My guys come over and it's like a, the opposite of an assembly line. It's like a disassembly line. They took my FLIR. Uh, they took my extra mags. They took my grenades. They, oh, I think they even took my K-bar. My buddy <laughs> took my 9 mil that we were talking about. Right, earlier. right. And so everything was taken off me except for my weapon and one magazine. He gave me a shot of morphine. I'm sitting up against this brick fence, feeling like Aladdin loaned me his magic carpet. And I'm just <laughs> hovering. And people were, it was like whack-a-mole. People were popping up at these windows, shooting in our direction. And so one of our uh, fire teams cleared that building, which took about 45 minutes. You know, and it, at that point, it, it's kind of like uh, saving Private Ryan with those little foil packs of uh, the, the good stuff, the opioid. You know, they give you that. You don't know what's fully happening. So they radioed for, uh, for my medevac. And at that point, I was seizuring and I was throwing up blood and I had mm. stuff kind of hanging out of me, uh, out of my, the hole in my face that wasn't there before. Probably shouldn't have been hanging out anyways, but so it got pretty bad. And so they, at that point, I think somebody in my, in my squad realized that the bullet had not nicked me and that it may have very well gone inside me. And so um, they radioed for the medevac. The medevac waited until there was no gunfire, not one of our Marines uh, that, that came, which still irks me to this day. Um, you know, it's, I, I guess I was hoping that it would be like uh, in the movie Black Hawk Down, you know, with Tom Sizemore, who we just lost. Uh, but his, his character, he's driving through gunfire, broken windshield, peppered his face, like doesn't right. matter. He's getting there where he's got to get. Yeah, that's the exact opposite of what happened for me. So they got me on the medevac, got me back to my base, to the MASH, you know, the, the field hospital. And one of the guys there was a Navy doctor who is a civilian neurosurgeon and um, anybody that was injured from like the chest up, he wanted to get hands on and check them out. And so with me, I, it, it's just, it's bizarre. I remember it all, but it's kind of like bits and pieces, like kind of a memory coming back. And I hear him snap on his glove. He's asking me a bunch of questions. And then I see him kind of like swirling his thumb around my face. I'm like, sir, what are you doing? He said, oh, I stuck my finger in your in the bullet hole in your face and I'm following the course of the bullet with my pinky. And so he said, that means that it didn't nick you. And so then they cut off all my clothes, which is a very humbling experience. When you're on morphine, you're like, oh, I really don't care. Um, you know, I, I joked that maybe there were some pictures taken for a magazine. I don't know. But um, they were looking for an exit. So they, they cut off all my stuff. And I said, What's this? 
they said, well, we're looking for the exit wound to see where the bullet may have exited. And so then it's like feeling every inch of my body, spreading my cheeks, like lifting up everything, no cough involved, just everything. It was, it was crazy. And so then he realized that it didn't exit anywhere. So then what seems like five minutes later, I'm on a helicopter flying right over the buildings, damn near right where the people were that were just shooting at us. And I just remember being strapped to this gurney thinking, man, we're like 10 feet above those buildings. Those people are going to shoot at us again or someone's going to RPG this helicopter. Didn't happen. But so we get to Baghdad and they, you know, they had all of the more advanced medical equipment in the, in the green zone. And um, the neurosurgeon guy was like, hey, we've done the, the CT scan and the bullet broke your jaw and your sinuses and it's right up inside the base of your skull by your brain. And I said, oh, man, that's all you think of was like, that sucks. But he said, you're really lucky that it didn't go, you know, just a little. Everyone's got that. Had it gone a millimeter or two millimeters more. But he said, if it had gone up a little bit more, it would have hit soft tissue. It would have just bounced around inside your skull. So it didn't happen. And uh, he said, your jaw is broken and we're going to wire your your jaws are going to be wired shut. Is there anyone you want to call before we do that? Like cell phone? I mean, we were still in the time of like <laughs> waiting for an hour and a half to two hours to get internet or to yeah. take a phone call. Yeah. So I said, oh, satellite phone? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, sir. I'll call my wife. Thank God I know her number. Because back in those days, you actually had to remember phone numbers. And I called her and uh, she knew something was wrong because of the timing. And um, she'd wanted me to come home. Obviously, everyone that's there, they want... You know, from the second they leave, they say, hey, I want you. I want you home. I want you home. So, boy, you're getting your wish. I'm coming home. Now, I read, it was pretty, pretty jerky of me to say it that way. But, um, yeah, so then they wired my jaw shut. And I spent the next two weeks in Longstuhl, Germany, um, you know, being stabilized in order to be strapped to another C-130 to fly back to D.C. And uh, it was causing seizures. It was causing really bad headaches. Uh, it was messing with my balance. So I was getting car sick, just sitting wherever. If I wanted, I stood up to go to the bathroom. I would throw up all over the place. It was, it was rough. Mm. And um, so then from Baghdad, I was sent back out to Camp Pendleton to Camp Margarita. And the cool thing is now the Marine Corps has the Wounded Warrior Regiment. When I was there, they literally called us the WIA platoon. Everybody was there. Shrapnel, IEDs, um, Gunshot wounds. Um, one of my buddies that I was in my unit with was on a turret gun, got shot through his face, blew out all of his teeth, but the bullet went through the other side. Like it went straight through his mouth. And so all of us were there just broken as could be. Uh, but now obviously there's, there's been an effort since like 2010, 2012 to retain wounded Marines and allow them to serve out their time as part of the Wounded Warrior Regiment. So we were, what we were became the Marine Corps Wounded Warrior Regiment, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. So that, um, that, that's when it all started with my recovery, being at Camp Pendleton, uh, hospital visits, uh, surgeries for my jaw. Uh, it was about a year that I was out there. And, um, you know, they, they, at the time, we were sitting around, hanging out. We were drinking. We were playing video games. We were just kind of doing whatever we wanted. And they said, we really need you guys to be more gainfully employed here on the base. So then they started assigning us jobs and we fought that tooth and nail. But now in retrospect, looking back, it's like, man, why'd you guys wait so long to right. get some of us out and make us do something 
because that that's when you start building the foundation for that wall that so many people put up around themselves when they get back. I mean, it, that's where it started. It was like right there at the WIA platoon. And um, that's also where I learned that I was being medically separated uh, during my medical retirement process, which was the, the medical board, the med board. Um, I was offered the chance to be promoted to sergeant because of my time and grade, time and service. And I said, oh, no, I'm, now I realize what an idiot that was. But I said, oh, no, if I didn't wear it while I was in, I don't want it on the way out the door. It's like right. a consolation prize. That was stupid. Uh, lesson learned. But yeah, so that um, once I was medically retired, that brought me back home. It brought me, I, I, my daughter was two and a half uh, by the time I got back. And uh, it was, things started normally. I was dealing with seizures and really bad migraines from all the nerve damage and the traumatic brain injury. And I said, oh, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. I'm going to go back to work. So I called my construction company and said, hey guys, I'm back. And that's kind of like the cool thing with the union is, you can call any company that's a part of the union and say, hey, this is who I am. Uh, they, you know, they'll, they'll check to make sure you don't have like any horrible conduct things. But um, it, my company said, man, we're so glad to have you back. We know what happened. Uh, this is the job site you'll be working at. Show up tomorrow at 7. Nice. That killed me. It about killed me. Seizures, oh. migraines. My body said, you're not doing this anymore. And that um, that was a really tough you know, a couple of months for me to, to get to that realization where it's something that I love doing. I couldn't be in the Marines anymore. I was out of the Marines, medically retired, you know, got the little green ID card, uh, couldn't go back to my building trade. And that is what led me. I know you've mentioned it a couple of times and, you know, we're doing this via Zoom so you can see the logo on my shirt. But at the time where I was probably at my lowest, one of the five founding members of the Coalition to Salute America's Heroes was very good friends with my twin brother. Uh, he was a double amputee from Iraq. Um, he started knocking, you know, and it's uh, it, right off of the bat, it was like Cheech and Chong, you know, like I hear you knocking, but you can't come in. And <laughs> he just kept doing it, kept doing it. And so eventually I, I accepted his his invitation to go to a couple of concerts and events. And it, it was exactly what I needed. Um, I love being a part of, you know, still kind of having that military mindset, being around people that were like-minded, that were also wounded. Uh, now everything is, is more heavily focused on the mental wounds, you know, but it, it, during the height of the war, every day, everyone that came back wounded was like, you're missing something or right. heavily scarred or you're burned or, or something. And so I started kind of doing what he was doing for me and jumped into like an advocacy role where I was like, man, I can see what you're doing. And here's one, here's three, four or five reasons why what you're doing is a horrible idea for you. It's not good for your kids and it's unfair to your wife. And because most of the, most of them are guys, but you know, there were some wounded females that were part of that as well, but it's like, you are robbing your significant other of these awesome experiences where people want to show appreciation for your service, but they also want to say thank you for the immense sacrifice that you've yeah. given and you're not doing that. And so I, I'm the tough love kind of guy, you know, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. I'm just going in there just like a bull in a China shop saying, Hey, you're doing this, you're doing this. Stop. You need to look at it this way. And it, it worked pretty well for me. So the coalition was like, man, this guy's all right. 
And so they uh, asked me to volunteer with them. And at that time, there were, you know, the uh, Semper Fi Fund, Wounded Warrior Project Coalition were like the three that were started kind of like-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I love... I love some of the work of one of the two that I mentioned. I don't like anything about the other one that I mentioned, but uh, I'm like, man, the coalition never heard of it, but I, I want to be a part of it. And uh, actually just February 1st, uh, I was promoted from kind of a operations uh, field vice president to our, our uh, senior vice president. So I do a lot more with grants, with fundraising, with uh, donor retention, with, um, Event planning, we focus on like marriage and counseling. And it's it's bizarre to see where I'm at now because I never in a million years thought that I would be here from where I was, you know, right when I got out. Uh, but it was, I've, I've said it a bunch, it's the best, worst thing that ever happened to me was getting injured and just kind of going through that, that path that I took because it led me to where I'm at now. Donnie, let's talk a little bit more about what the coalition does. I'm familiar with it because I've checked out your website, very impressive organization. But you, can you explain what the coalition does and how people might take advantage of it? Yep. So I think the biggest thing, the coalition since day one has always been known for the ability to provide emergency financial assistance. And it was started in Bampsey, which is in San Antonio, where everybody that was burned or wounded uh, that was in the army more than likely was treated if they were going to be there for an extended period of time. And a guy came through there with, you know, to, to show appreciation. And he gathered a couple of folks together that were there like long-term, like they lived there. And he said, what don't you guys have? And a lot of them said, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here, but my wife is home and You know, I'm not inpatient, so I'm living here, but we're kind of maintaining essentially two households and it's breaking us. Some of them wound up moving to Bampsey and and some it just became an issue. But financial assistance was the top thing for that. And um, one of the founding guys was like, hey, I don't want to ask anybody for help. And the hospitals didn't really have those kind of clearinghouse case managers uh, to be able to take in all of the donated goods and services and facilities to implement them. And so uh, he said, I need help with, with diapers for my kids. You know, you come back and that hazard duty pay stops, tax stuff kicks in right away. It takes a little while. If you've been making a significant amount more, it when you land and that stops, you're like, oh, dang, you know, and they tell you it's going to happen, but it's different when it, when it physically happens. Yeah. So the coalition started with the idea of focusing on emergency financial assistance. That has been the core. It's been the backbone of the organization since 2004 when it started. And we used to do these huge recovery conferences with, you know, uh, 150 guys and girls from Walter Reed, from Bethesda, from Bampsey, from the Wounded Warrior Regiment, Camp Pendleton. And we would bring them to this conference and it would be transition assistance. It would be mental health services. It would be like sexual health to show them how they could still be a good partner and a good lover even though they've dealt with issues that have made them disabled. Um, employment was a huge focus and it was really just showing people what they needed to be able to kind of lift them out of service and put them into something that was gainful and beneficial uh, and, and hopefully, you know, financially well-putting. But so that that's how it started with those, those two big things. There's not really much of a need for the conferences anymore, the, the big, huge scale things. Uh, and we recognize that. So, 
one of the very, uh, the other important aspect of that was with some of these guys and girls, when they were wounded, they were facing extended periods of hospitalization, which now that kind of carries over to someone with traumatic brain injury and severe post-traumatic stress where they aren't gainfully employed, nor really can they be. And it, there, there's a lot of room for improvement with the designation of PTSD. I think a lot of people tend to use that as a crutch to prevent them from doing a lot of things. Yes. And I, again, tough love. I, I, I've got to push people out of their comfort zone to show them more of what they're capable of. And so the financial part of it, obviously it can't be all financial help to a family all the time, but the coalition was a nonprofit, which meant that there were people that were donating to it. And so one of the ladies that was uh, kind of a home uh, call center developer said, you know, it'd be a really cool idea if we brought in 15 or 20 of these either wounded veterans or their caregivers that had left their job to be home with them and gave them the ability to tell, you know, work in a, in a virtual office setting and give them a list of names and numbers of people that are donated to the coalition, whether it's five bucks or 500. And they call and say, Mr. Faint, we got your $5 donation. My family was impacted by the support you've given. I just want to say thank you. This, your donation is going to fund a program that actually pays me to call and thank our donors and to be able to still be earning an income to be able to help to, to wow. take care of my family's expenses. And it's so cool because now I'm thinking about all of the other applications for this virtual office setting. Now there's like 35 people in it, uh, but it's been a staple, but no one else did that. And so the coalition really differentiated themselves a lot in the beginning. So that program is still going strong today. It started in like 2008. It is still going strong today, uh, much more efficient, much more tech savvy with all of the stuff where everything is recorded. And, you know, they have to give you that old, this is on a recorded call line thing, uh, but it's awesome. And if you look at what someone that had to leave to get a part-time job, leave the house, you know, you're not going to be making $15 an hour if you're just going to like some local something to work closer to home. Right. It's, it's good pay. It's a unique opportunity. And that has kind of put us in like the whole family perspective. So, you know, it, it, I've, I've gotten to go on a couple of really cool hunts. Uh, I've been offered trips, which everything sounds good or in the right setting. I've had people promise me the world and it sounds amazing. And as soon as that event ends and you try and call and say, Hey, Mr. So-and-so, I wanted to ask you about that crickets. Wow. So it happens. Um, but when I go and do something like that, when I come home, if I've had the time of my life, but I left and my daughter was sick and my wife was sick or things were crazy at home, all of a sudden, my feel good that's up here about this experience is now down to here. And so right away, we said, it isn't fair to just focus on the needs of the veteran without focusing on the needs of the caregiver. So we started a caregiver program. That is uh, a lot of our caregivers are a part of the Dole Foundation caregiver program. So, you know, ours, uh, the one thing that I love to hear about our caregiver program is that it's more substantive. It's more heartfelt. Um I have been told that the other one feels a little bit like a horse and pony show uh, where they focus more on like lobbying and legislation and great photo ops in front of the Capitol and the White House. And we're not like that. Uh, caregivers at home, they're taking care of their wounded veteran. They're just kind of establishing this new normal that, you know, it, it's life. And so we said, what do you need? 
how about some kits that we can send to your house with like bath stuff and and things that you can do for you to help you relax books and be a part of a virtual book club and all of these things that it's like yeah you're a caregiver and you're 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 doing your job as part of your marriage but what about you and so grocery shopping nobody likes grocery shopping it's it it sucks and with caregivers you know a lot of time they would have to leave to go grocery shopping which is totally normal and again with some of the people with genuine you know authentic uh severe post traumatic stress any of those things are triggers to drive through the parking lot to hear all those sounds and, and see some of those things. And it's yeah. something that you've got to work on. So obviously, usually in this case, it's the caregiver, the wife, or some of them are mom or dads are going to the store. Then that's time away from home. And that's, you know, some of the time that's needed, but it's like, well, what if we sent you, what if we did groceries that we sent to your house, which now that's mainstream COVID made that mainstream. We were doing that before it was cool. And so we send these boxes of food uh, with ingredients and all these different things through a couple of different partnerships that we pay for to caregivers. And so it started with like five or 10. And now there's like 300 caregivers in this program. Wow. And it's, it's huge. And one of the caregivers was like, Oh, I'm doing this thing. Uh, but I've got to find someone to, to watch my child while I do it. And one of the caregivers on this, on this, uh, in this setting said, why doesn't the coalition have a program for kids? That's a great question. <laughs> so we started what's called our America's Little Helpers program. And again, there's some overlap with our caregivers between the Dole caregiver program and our caregiver program. Um, so there's some information sharing there. Right when we did our announcement of our launch of our children's program, the Dole Foundation program also announced that they were going to have a children's program that was eerily similar to ours. And uh, so it's awesome because I've got a five-year-old and I've got a 14-year-old and I have a, a almost 20-year-old. And all of them have been a part of these events where it's it's kind of like a summer camp through Zoom where they're like, hey, we're going to do these art classes and we're going to do this painting class. And they bring on like um, paint teachers and they bring on arts and crafts professionals. And my son and I did a sushi making class and we did um uh they, they made shirts for this summer camp but it was back-to-back events with this awesome motivational speaker and it is truly just like there's so much heart in the program that we have for the caregivers and the veteran and you know what we found with with suicide and with depression and and other issues tied to tbi and anxiety or uh, uh ptsd and tbi kind of a deadly combination really is that if someone gets wounded and they get hurt, blown up, shot, burned, whatever, they can recover from that. And and most of them do. Some of them, you know, they carry a heavy burden, a lot of survivor's guilt, a lot of um, the parts of it that they experience, they just don't let go of. And so it, we want to get them recovering physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But we found that if they lose their family in the process of, you know, hitting their rock bottom or, or kind of on their descent down. Uh, that's that's a huge trigger uh, that has led to a, a spike in veterans committing suicide is yeah. losing their families because the 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 wife or the husband of the wounded veteran, like they're they're not the person they married anymore, like to the extreme. And with the severe PTSD and stuff and the TBI, 
it makes the interactions different with the kids and the, the family. So everything we do is focused on the keeping the family together, keeping everyone engaged, uh, and then really just sending things to them at their at their home that allows them to take time for themselves, whether it's the kid, because a lot of kids tend to serve as secondary uh, caregivers, whether it's the caregiver, uh, but we, you know, it, it, there's a lot of studies and research that have been published and peer reviewed that show how real secondary post-traumatic stress is in a military family, especially when it comes to someone that was wounded. Um, it, it's so we, that, that's our goal. That's the coalition's goal is to keep families together for wounded military veterans, uh, but also to just improve their quality of life and, and try to make things better for them. We're not a we're not a catch all. Uh, but we do have our our family network of programs that are individually geared, but collectively it's it's a conglomerate. It's the whole family approach, and I love it. Well, Donnie, when we were talking earlier, it seemed that you mentioned that the coalition reached out to you a few times before you took advantage of what they were offering. Why was that? Stubborn. I was yeah. um, infantry. You know, I, I came home. I felt like I was uh, kind of cheated out of finishing my experience. And I was, I won't say depressed, but I guess it was kind of depressed uh, about the idea of coming home before all my guys, not being able to fulfill my my commitment for my deployment. Yeah. And I just, for whatever reason, I was I was locking myself into this like virtual bunker in my mind of just not wanting to get out and do things and not wanting to be around people. And I'm so thankful. And, and the person that brought me on has long since moved on to other things. Uh, but I will always be thankful that when he called and I said, no, thanks, man, I'm not interested, that he didn't accept that. And that kind of became my approach was like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not the telemarketer, you know, but I'm also not going to go away. Right. Okay. Well, Assuming Iraq becomes stable years from now, would you go back as a, as a tourist? Would you go back to check it out? Probably not. And uh, the reason why is that um, I've, I've become friends with a guy named Rick Kelp, who runs a group called the Troops First Foundation. And his program is called Operation Proper Exit. So right when I moved to Texas from Iowa in 2010, uh, someone that I had met through work said, what would you think about this being able to fill that incomplete feeling of leaving where you got shot on an, on an airplane on a gurney? What would you think if you could leave it the right way, the proper way, walk in and walk out? Like, oh, are you kidding me? That'd be a dream come true. And so I moved here in 2010, Easter of 2010. I was on a flight to Kuwait and we stayed in one of the palaces in Baghdad. And oh, wow. uh, it's, yeah, it was, we were there for about a week. Um, every single person, we went to every single location where we, I think we had 10 guys with us. Uh, Leroy Petrie was with our group at that time. Him and Rick are really, really close. Uh, Matthew Bradford, who's a incredible Marine that lost both of his legs and his vision. Um, you know, riding on the helicopter, being able to explain to him as vividly as possible what, what I'm seeing, you know, so it's my perspective, but I'm giving it to him. But so I did get to go back to Iraq in 2010 and got to see where, where I was, where the chicken factory was, where my base was. 
completely leveled dirt field, no presence of, of our guys there. Got to go into the embassy in Baghdad, the billion dollar embassy. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there were there were issues while we were there with security, with threats and and attempts and people shooting RPGs at the palaces, knowing that it's kind of a um, you know, that that's where people were still actively involved and actively staying. Uh pretty awesome. Toby Keith happened to be staying in our uh, at the palace where we were at. And so, you know, we were doing, he was doing a USO concert and he's back at the lobby and he's like, Hey, you guys want to have a drink? And they, they're everything there was like <laughs> malt, malt beverages, no, right. no alcohol. No right. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you, what do you got? Tells one of his bandmates like, Hey, bring down some of the Jack. Well, apparently he was able to bring over like eight or 10 bottles of Jack Daniels that they put in <laughs> like music equipment boxes. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we were hanging out in the hotel, drinking Jack Daniels on the rocks, listening to Toby Keith before the concert and then after. Uh, so it was an experience that I will never forget. But would I want to go back to Iraq to take a campus tour of like Baghdad College or, or uh, probably not? I would go back to Kuwait. I think Kuwait was around the water, or, you know, around the Gulf. The Kuwait was really, really cool. Northern Iraq, uh, when I went to proper exit, we got to go to all the different bases. We were in Balad. We were up. Um, man, we were, we were all over the place. From a Christian biblical standpoint, Northern Iraq with the, you know, the, some of the, the areas mentioned in the Bible. Yeah. That would be awesome. Would I want to go back without thinking that I had to have like a fully armed security detail with me? You know, now it isn't even Iraq and just, angry Iraq people that are, that are hiding out in that area. It's ISIS. Right. Do I want to wind up on a video uh, with ISIS? Absolutely not. So <laughs> I'll probably reserve going back to visit Iraq forever. Well, I've never heard of Operation Proper Exit. I'll have to check that out. That sounds pretty amazing. I'm glad you guys had that opportunity. So cool. And, and I'm not, I, I had the biggest lump in my throat and the, the most butterflies in my stomach when we landed in Baghdad and they put that ramp down. And it was us walking back into country, like leaving, leaving was easy, but stepping off of that plane, it was, it was way harder than I thought it would be because I almost died the last time, you know, that I was there. Yeah, no doubt. I served there three times and I was an Intel officer, so I wasn't out doing patrolling or anything, but yeah, there's nothing I left there that I want to go back for. So, and yeah. I didn't get shot in the face over it either. So I, I get it. I understand. Well, and the okay. joy is, I mean, the, the thing that I brought with me, it's there are very strict instructions of what's happening with this when my time is done. That that sucker is being taken out, <laughs> indiscriminately taken out. <laughs> yeah, what do you care? Matter. Right, right. Uh, but I want that thing flattened into a necklace and I want my initials stamped into it. And then I don't care what happens after that, but that that's my plan. That's It is written in stone that when I'm gone, that thing is coming out, flattening it because it's just lead. Right with a brass sleeve in the middle. Right, but it's it's put my initials on that sucker and take it out of me. So when we were talking before the show, I think you mentioned that they decided to leave it in your face because it's there's like a bunch of nerves nearby or something. Yep. So when I was in uh, launch school, I, I went through a lot of uh, I had several surgeries, but also very rigorous uh, attention to detail by neurology and neurosurgeons. And they said the area where it's at, where the tip of the bullet is, is um, 
right where my spinal cord branches off of the spinal cord on both ends of your spine and goes into your brain. It is there. And the guy in Baghdad mentioned it, but the guy in Lonshul reconfirmed it for me that if that were taken out, the nerves that would have to be manipulated in order to get to it would likely put me in a wheelchair. And I do way too much dumb stuff <laughs> to think about being bound at this point. But it's um, it does cause lead uh, leaking into my bloodstream issues, which that's checked every six months. Okay. Um, I don't take any more seizure medication, but I was on seizure medication for years. I do occasionally have seizures now and then, um, but nothing grand malls and absence seizures, like nothing like it was in the, in the beginning years of it. A uh, lot of chronic nerve pain. Most of the, that's probably my biggest complaint is that now where the bullet broke my jaw, I've developed arthritis. So I have TMJ all the time. It feels like Chuck Norris kicked me right in the face all the time. But then it also feels like someone is sitting on my shoulders trying to pull my head off of my shoulders to separate it. There's, it's just, it's a lot of nerve pain. The muscles are messed up. My tongue is dead all the way down on the left side to my epiglottis. So I choke a lot. Um, there are certainly a lot of residuals from it, but the chronic pain, and I've, I've talked to so many guys where the, the, the pain that never goes away is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And for me, I just, I just keep pushing on because I'm, I'm too stubborn, uh, nor would I ever consider taking the pain that I'm experiencing and giving it to everyone around me. Right on. Uh, so it, that's just the burden that I bear. But the chronic pain is the worst. And I don't take any uh, prescription pain medicine for it. I love chiropractic. Uh, live with ibuprofen. You know, Motrin is my friend. Um, topical stuff that I pick up in Colorado or other places makes a very effective uh, topical ointment that really helps with the inflammation and the pain. But the chronic pain, more than the seizures, more than the 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 headaches, more than anything, the chronic pain has been the the thing that every day is always there. It never goes away. And then some of the time it just gets worse and worse and worse. But I manage and I, I keep pushing on and kind of living life. And, and like I said earlier, I do all kinds of dumb things like skydiving. And, you know, I, I, I do know roller coasters. That is a death sentence for me. Uh, I like them. I mean, I'm not afraid of any of that stuff, but I have done it. And it felt like I was dying when I got off of that thing. So I'm like, okay, I have a list of things I don't do anymore. Those are definitely on. <laughs> Well, well, Donnie, other than the bullet in your face that you brought back from Iraq, do you have any other favorite mementos, either from your time downrange or in your time in the Marines overall? You know, I think uh, it, it's funny. I, I saw this uh, campaign on Twitter that the Marine Corps did, and they said, you know, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, they're all giving out bonuses and things to get you to join with the Marines. And it's a horrible recruiting campaign. But he said, with the Marine Corps, we're going to give you the ability to call yourself a Marine. And, I, you know, it's um, I don't buy into the whole thing that it's this lifelong brotherhood or this lifelong fellowship, because if you're a bad person before you joined, you're still a bad person. If you were a thief That's before right. you joined, you're still a thief. But for the ones that make the effort to stay connected and to keep living that kind of that Semper Fidelis, that always faithful kind of a mentality, I think that's probably the biggest thing, whether it was Iraq or, or just anything in general, was that. 
I will always be able to say that I was proudly serving as a Marine. My daughter, who is almost 20, uh, had a boyfriend for five years. He went and became a Marine. Now he's her fiance. And I wasn't his deciding factor. He had several other brothers that served in the Marines. But the closeness that we feel because of that connection from having earned that Eagle Globe and Anchor, it doesn't matter how it's given to you at the end of your 13 weeks, whether it was somewhat hell, a little bit of hell, not that bad, you get that Eagle Globe and Anchor. And as long as you don't do anything stupid to tarnish the image and the brand, uh, I think it's something that really can stick with you forever. Yeah, proud to bear the title, right? Exactly. Okay. You know the song, don't you? I I do. I do. I know them all, (laughs) even though I have 27 years in the Army. I I know them all. And the Marines does – you guys do have the best recruiting. You have the best uniforms. You got the best song. So, yeah, I got to give it to the Marine Corps for that. Well, and so a cool uh, end note on the the whole Marine thing was that when I joined in 99, I had a cousin. So my brother was Army, uh, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma Artilleryman. Um, But my cousin was a Marine. And my cousin in Iowa had served from like 88 to 92. So then I joined in 99, like I said. So there's seven years between his service and mine. And he gave me his dress blues. And the cool thing about the dress blues is they haven't changed almost ever. Right. They literally are the exact same. So then I had them from 99 to 2005 when I got out. I was very, very active. Uh, when I started with the coalition, I mean, yes, they had to be taken out a time or two, but I was still wearing them, you know, that, that anodized, uh, purple heart and all my other medals, my stack, it just looked amazing. Always getting haircuts back when I didn't care if I had a beard, I wore my blues all the time for different events and things, wherever it was warranted. And then, uh, it got to a point where I was, I, I was done with that. So probably about 2000. 16, I hung those suckers up in the closet, sealed them in the bag, never wore them again. Um, and what's funny is I told you I got them from my, my cousin that joined in 88. So his name was already in the back. So I didn't even have to stamp my name in there. But there was another name in there, English. And he had gotten them from his buddy who served from 1980 to 1988. So he was in for eight years. He had them from 1980 to then. Gave them to my cousin. My cousin closeted them just like I did. Gave them to me. Uh, this last Marine Corps ball, so it would be 2022. My daughter's fiance, um, he's hitting the gym, super fit, super fit guy. Blues didn't fit him anymore. And whatever, whatever they did for him, the size, they didn't give him nearly as much extra real estate in there as they gave me with mine. So... He came to me and said, man, my blues, the, the, the ball is like in three weeks and my blues don't fit anymore. So I'm thinking, how do you feel about crash diets? <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, that, that wasn't him. So I said, try on my dress blues. I haven't touched them in, since in, in, so what is it now? Eight years. Hadn't touched them. And he tried them on. He's like, wow. And I'm a, I'm a 42 regular. So he's like, that, it's pretty comfortable. So then I looked and I said, dude, there's a lot of room. Those can be taken in. So we were in a met in Houston with the, the CO of uh, the Ellington Marine unit. And I, was, I, I got to know him pretty well that night. Marine Corps Ball, I sent him an email and said, hey, ask Lance Corporal White how old his dress, or, or ask him about his dress blues. And the guy said, well, that's a weird question, but okay. <laughs> 
come to find out that the his CEO uh, was like three years old when those dress blues were first issued to wow. the Marine and put them in circulation. And now here we are, oof, 23 years later. No, 43 years later. Dang. So those dress blues, they have not changed at all. And now my daughter's fiance, who I love the kid, he's great. He is wearing dress blues that I wore, that I got from someone that wore them, who got them from someone that wore them, and they haven't changed a bit. Wow. Amazing. Yep. I didn't know the whole thing about CO being two years old at that time. <laughs> but it was that, that was that was pretty cool. And that's like that's the thing that a Marine would do for another Marine. Yeah. And what a great legacy to be able to hand that down versus us in the army. We're, I retired in November. We were in our fourth uniform. But I love that. I mean, I'm a big fan of the movie Captain America. Those dress greens. I mean, they just look vintage. They look cool. They look like, you know, World War II kind of recruiting poster. Uh, I, I dig them. I, I think they're great. They do. They look sharp. I didn't buy them on the way out because almost nothing is interchangeable. So I'd have to buy a complete new outfit. And they're not cheap. As you, as you know, stuff's not cheap. Oh, yeah. And they don't give it to you. I don't think people realize, you want another anodized metal? They may start at 18 or $20. If you've got nine or 10 medals, that's a <laughs> lot of money. And that's only on one part of the uniform. That's right. That's right. For sure. I guess it's worth it in the end, but I, I'll keep my dress blues. That's what I'll wear when I, when I do things. Yeah. At least for now. And when you stop wearing them, you just throw them in a shadow box. Put them up on the wall, and it will be something that hopefully will be handed down from generation to generation. For sure. I, my dad was also in for 26 years. He's still with us, but I've got all his stuff now. and They're hanging up in my wow. – Yeah, and he's, he's got a lot more stuff than I do. So, the Army used to be more generous. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was in the Army when it was hard, not my dad, my Vietnam-era father, for sure. So, okay. Yeah, hey – Donnie, we're coming towards the end of the segment, but I want to, I would like to end on a positive note. So can you tell us what your plans are for the future, where you see yourself, where you see the coalition and the work you're doing? Oh, so my future plan, uh, I mean, part of my plan I've already fulfilled, and that was I wanted to earn a college degree uh, so that I could always tell my kids, go for college. And I mean, if I can do it, you can do it kind of a thing. So you know, being a part of the coalition allowed me to earn my, uh, I started with an associates because I'm like, oh, let's get an associates and be done with it. Then I was able to knock out my bachelor's for business. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I was at an event in Atlanta and I was talking to somebody that was promoting a scholarship. And I said, well, how does that work? And they told me and I said, okay, I hadn't thought about going to school because I'd already used all my voc or, uh, voc rehab and my uh, post 9-11 said, but I'll, I'll I'll shoot for that. Well, I got selected, uh, wound up knocking out my MBA through that scholarship with zero debt. And um, that was part of my thing was that my involvement in my nonprofit was to help establish myself professionally and, uh, you know, being a certified peer mentor and things to be able to help lift people up. But in five years, I hope uh, to see that the coalition gets more funding for the children's program and the caregiver program, recognizing those needs and that kind of ongoing battle with, you know, the bureaucracy and the, the, the Department of Veteran Affairs with giving some things and taking some things away. And, and I, I understand not everything is for everyone all the time. 
Uh, but I really hope that in five years time, three to five years time, uh, that the coalition has a seat at the table for lobbying and legislation when it comes to things that are impacting veterans like me that have been out for way longer than I was in. Um, but recognizing the needs outside of the, the federal government's ability to, to fulfill them. I hope that the coalition is still as successful as we are now with outreach, but that I hope that through a windfall or someone wins a lottery or something, that there is a major boost financially because we've reached a point where the amount of support we have is decreasing, but the amount of requests for assistance we've got mm. is like going in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So we've done such a good job of helping people and telling, you know, veterans word of mouth, telling other veterans, if you need this, go to the coalition or some of these other groups with three letters in their, in their initials and their name, you know, someone says, Oh, I need this help. Oh, that's, Call the coalition. We don't do that. I hope that not only are we uh, a force to be reckoned with, you know, as far as developmentally and, and with our program implementation, uh, but I hope that it is a much more common household name and that people come to realize that just because someone says that the wars are over, uh, there are people that are still in, in Think of it this way. When when someone is killed in action while serving in the military, it doesn't have to be in an imminent danger zone. It could be a training accident. They are a part of that thing where it says a veteran writes a blank check to the government, to the people of the, I wouldn't even say to the government because I don't want to get political, to the people of the United States that fewer than 1% write a check saying, I am willing to give you up to an amount, including my life. Some people pay that, whether it's in an accident, whether it's yep. killed in action, whether it's whatever. Other people like me, they just have bits and pieces of that check taken out more and more and more. And then as more of these war injuries develop with age, those chunks seem to get bigger and bigger. And so it's weird to think that, you know, for me personally, it may be 20 years from now. My heart tells me that the thing that's going to take me, they're going to they're going to say, Due to wounds received, it'll be just like reading um, a, a casualty notification. It, it'll say, due to wounds received in Iraq, in the Marine Corps. It's like, wow, what do you, that was 30 years ago. But it's, it's that kind of a burden that people with physical and, and mental wounds carry after their service that people recognize and, and that they support that more. Because right now, the misconception is that if a veteran gets out, if they get out of the military, the VA's got them, everything's good. But the right. Secretary of the VA uh, has said multiple times that the work of nonprofits is critical to whole health care for the family, to emotional and, and um, physical well-being. So I, I really hope that in five years, the coalition is just kicking butt, taking names, that more people in America know about the coalition, and that, you know, when they're looking at you know, I've got $25 or $50 or, or whatever to donate this month or whatever. I hope that the coalition is higher up on that list uh, for them to consider supporting because of just the the impact and the depth and the love and the support that we put into all of our programs. Very well stated, Donnie. So last bit, over to you for final thoughts. Anything that you want to reiterate or anything we haven't covered that you'd like our audience to hear? You know, I think that um, the one thing that we haven't mentioned, and I, I hear it every once in a while, and it always kind of touches a, a, a feel-good nerve for me, uh, is that you don't have to thank people when they come back. You don't have to just do it right when they come back. 
And you've, you've probably seen a resurgence of people thanking Vietnam veterans or welcoming them home. Uh, I've, I've seen people that have been home from Vietnam for 45 years where in the right setting, someone says, you know, I, I know you guys got a, a, a raw deal when you came back, uh, but I want to thank you for your service. And I want to say welcome home, you know, because you didn't get that the right way. I think for Iraq, Afghanistan, New Dawn, and just global war on terrorism in general, I mean, there's 26,000 people right now deployed throughout the Middle East uh, that are still in what are considered global war on terrorism operations. Being able to give them thanks and appreciation on a regular basis and not just saving it for Veterans Day uh, or heaven forbid Memorial Day, you know, just making that more of an everyday act of kindness or an act of, of showing your support and appreciation. You don't have to give someone anything, uh, but just to be able to keep, you know, it, it be in the forefront of your mind that the people that serve may still be carrying some of the burdens of that war, whether it was Vietnam or, or Desert Storm or Korea or the Gulf War, uh, give them a thanks. I've got a neighbor that lives next door to me that every time he and I are talking about something, he's like, man, this and this and this, but brother, I want to thank you for your service of being an ass kicking Marine and serving our country and going over there and doing what you were asked to do. And it's like, you tell me this all the time, but it's awesome. And I wish more people would do that. For sure. Well, Donnie, thank you. I think this is the record for the longest Battlefields podcast to date. It was fantastic talking to you. And would love to have you back on again and find out ways that our audience and the Havoc Journal and Epoch Times can help out with the coalition. Awesome. I, I, I'm here anytime. You guys are awesome. I love the podcast. I love listening to them. I told you my goal is to have them all read. I hope other people learn about it and read them and play it in the car. Don't turn on the radio, <laughs> open it up and put on the podcast and listen to them. All right, brother. Stay safe. Thanks for being on the show. You as well, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields podcast. Many thanks to today's guest, Donnie Doffenbaugh, to our editor, Michael Neal, to our sponsors, the Epoch Times and the Havoc Journal. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. God bless. And until next time, good hunting on your own battlefields.